you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to focus on verses 14 through 19 this morning. As you get yourself situated there, whether you've got a hard copy or if you are in a, uh, a digital version there on your phone, you'll notice even just visually when you are looking at Genesis 1, 2, 3, you look forward into Genesis 4, this chunk of Genesis chapter 3 kind of stands out because even just visually on the page there, it's set up differently. It's not narrative form anymore. There's this break here that takes place in the middle of chapter 3 where it's, it's laid out almost like poetry. This section of Genesis chapter 3 is the first of a kind of subset of biblical literature that are called judgment oracles. Most judgment oracles in the Old Testament come in the prophets. Um, there's a little chunk of these here, the first set of judgment oracles that come in the context of a narrative book, the book of Genesis. So we'll work our way through these this morning, um, kind of see the way that these are set up, how it is that they're laid out, uh, even just within kind of Genesis chapter 3. And the hope is that as, as we do this, uh, a lot of times we kind of start with the main point, and then we work through proving the main point, and then we end with the main point. Today we're going to build that as we, go, uh, as we go along in Genesis chapter 3. When you woke up this morning, you woke up in the same reality that you have woken up in every single day of your life. You woke up this morning, maybe you are feeling a little bit sick. You woke up this morning and you stood up out of bed and like the knees were sore and the back was sore and you did the like, ugh, when you stood up. If you, if you watch the news or read the newspaper, or maybe you get news from headlines or whatever on your phone, you woke up in the same sort of broken, sin-stained world that you've always existed in. Every single day of your life, when you've gotten up, it's been the same reality. Just over the last week or so, if you've been following uh, along in the news, we see violence like everywhere around us. Right here in our own community, a young man approaches the wrong house, and he gets shot. Some cheerleaders approach the wrong car in a superstore parking or supermarket parking lot and they get shot. A little girl has her basketball roll into the wrong yard. She gets shot. Kids go to school. Like this, this is unfortunately the broken, painful, destructive world that we live in. And every single day that you've woken up in your life, the forms of brokenness might look different but the reality is the same. This morning in Genesis chapter three, we're gonna see something very different from that. We wake up in a broken world, if you're a follower of Jesus, we kind of groan and we say, there's something better down the road. God promised it's not always going to be this way. Adam and Eve on this particular day that we're gonna see in Genesis chapter three have only ever experienced perfection and God is going to say, there's something different coming and it's not good. They've only known what we hope for, and they're looking forward now in Genesis 3 to what we've only ever experienced, brokenness. They've only known perfection. God says brokenness and sin and pain is what is coming. We've only known brokenness, sin, and pain, and Scripture says there's something better coming. So if you've got Genesis chapter 3 open there in front of you, 
It's helpful, again, for us to get the whole of this in context. So I'm going to start in Genesis 3, verse 1, and read through verse 19, even though we're only looking at verses 14 and 19 this morning, 14 through 19 this morning. Here's what it says. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I knew I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and I will and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. That as we saw last week, even though we live in a world broken, marred, stained by sin, that you have not ceded control of this place. That your word tells us that sin is not ultimate and sin will not have the last word, that you will be victorious. God, I pray that you would teach our hearts this morning what it is to grab hold of that hope and to actually live in light of it. God, help us to have a broad understanding of the reality of sin to be sober-minded about that truth, but also help us to have a broad understanding of the gospel, to rejoice deeply in the truth that you will overcome and be triumphant over everything that sin has broken. God, you will restore all things. Open our eyes to that truth. Help us to see it afresh this morning. Teach our hearts how to live in light of that, God. How to take hold of it. Be marked by it. 
celebrate its truth, walk in its reality. God, would you do this for your glory by the power of your spirit working through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you're just looking at Genesis 3, 14 through 19 there on your page. What you have in front of you are judgment oracles. And now there's some debate about the nature of these. I hope one of the things you're seeing as we work through Genesis chapters uh, one, two, and three here, there's a lot of debate about this stuff. The debate as it relates to these is, are these pronouncements or descriptions? Is God saying, I will do this? Or is he saying, this is what will happen as a result of sin? Which is it? Descriptive or prescriptive? Is God describing what reality is going to become or is he telling them what he is about to do? I think the answer is yes. I think he's doing both. God is both announcing what he will do. He's also describing what it is that will happen. But the lines of which is happening where in Genesis 3, 14 to 19 are kind of hard to draw and that's okay. What's clear is that sin does not go unchecked or unpunished. That's, that's like the big picture idea here in Genesis 3, 14 to 19. Sin enters into the world and God is wildly gracious. We saw that last week in his conversation with Adam and Eve. And then you get Genesis 3, 14 to 19 and God is perfectly just. That's the picture you have sort of shaking hands here in Genesis chapter three. God is wildly gracious and yet perfectly just and neither compromises the other. You'll also notice as we read through that, if you're sort of paying attention to the structure of things in Genesis chapter three, that in God's conversation with Adam and Eve about what's happened, He talks to Adam, who implicates Eve, who implicates the serpent. Then, starting in verse 14, God is going to make his pronouncements in the reverse order. Serpent, then Adam, or then Eve, then Adam. That flow, working one way and then reversing it, is what is known as a a literary structure known as a chiasm or a chiastic structure. You do one thing, then you work it in reverse. So in Genesis chapter three, here is the chiastic structure. God speaks to Adam, Adam implicates Eve, Eve implicates the serpent, God speaks to the serpent, God speaks to Eve, God speaks to Adam. The reason we wanted to put this on the screen, this shows up all throughout scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And typically, the reason for a chiastic structure somewhere, whether it takes place over a few verses, over a whole chapter, or even larger kind of over an entire section, is that the author is trying to draw your attention to something. Many times the author's trying to draw your attention to the thing that's at like the head of the arrow. Now in this particular instance, the thing at the head of the arrow is the serpent. He's not really been the focus of anything in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's there but not the focus. In this case, what the chiastic structure is trying to draw your attention to is that everyone implicated in sin feels the consequence of sin. No one is left out. Everyone involved 
God is perfectly just to everyone involved. In fact, if you back yourself up to the beginning of chapter three, there's actually like a double chiastic thing happening here. The way that works is that everyone is involved in sin. The serpent talks to Eve who eats the fruit and hands it to Adam. Then God has a conversation with Adam who implicates Eve, who implicates the serpent. Then God pronounces consequence to the serpent and to Adam, or and to Eve and to Adam. Just back and forth. No loose ends in the whole thing. That's what Genesis chapter three is pointing out. Everyone's involved. Everyone receives some sort of consequence or curse, depending on how you look at it. The most popular like colloquial chiastic structure, we don't call it that, but JFK's most famous line in a speech, ask not what your country can do for you, run it backwards, but what you can do for your country, there you go. When you study scripture, if you notice one of these chiasms, it's helpful to stop and ask yourself, what is this trying to direct my attention to? Why is this set up this way? Some of them are very hard to see. Some of them are kind of on the surface a little bit more like here in Genesis chapter three. In this case, in terms of sin, God is not going to overlook any of the involved parties. He is perfectly just. And then in each one of these, to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam, there's a biological component and a relational component. And so we'll work through all three. It starts with the serpent. From this moment forward, the serpent looks forward at a future of humiliation and defeat. That's God's pronouncement. Humiliation and defeat. In the same way that the introduction to the serpent in Genesis 3 verse 1 is an introduction to the one behind the serpent, Satan, who the serpent somehow represents or who Satan is somehow embodying a serpent, whatever is the case there, so too God's pronouncement is directed at the one behind the serpent. And it's the biological components that sort of play this out. I don't think that Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is trying to give us an explanation for why it is that snakes don't have legs. I also don't think that Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is trying to give us an explanation for why people are afraid of snakes. People are afraid of all kinds of animals, mice, spiders, wasps, hideous massive creatures that live in the sea and want to drag you from the beach out for lunch somewhere deep in, is that just me? There's horrifying stuff in the ocean. I'm a little bit afraid of it. But that's not what Genesis chapter three is trying to lay out for us. These biological components, cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal, move on your belly, eat dust all the days of your life. Those descriptions are to point to the humiliation that Satan is going to endure. The whole idea, being lowered to the ground and eating dust, are Hebrew idioms for being humbled to the lowest point. If you have kids that have ever done the swim team thing, whether it be in the summer or like a year-round deal and you go to a swim meet and, and little kids have stuff written on their arms and sometimes on their arms or on their back, it'll say, eat my bubbles, right? Huh? It's about, it's about like, low, I'm gonna humble you. You're gonna eat my bubbles, right? 
You're going to be lowered down onto the ground, move along on your belly, and eat dust all the days of your life. Serpent, Satan, you're going to be humiliated. That idiom actually plays itself out throughout the Old Testament. It pops up multiple times when Job is uh, in the middle of uh, enduring all that he endures. We're told that he's sitting on a pile of ashes or dust heap, right? He's been humiliated, lowered to the lowest point. Psalm 119 verse 25, the psalmist says, my life is in the dust. I've been lowered down. Then the psalmist says, give me life, raise me back up according to your word. The relational component here for the serpent, verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Again, I don't think this is an explanation for why if you see a snake on your driveway, you want to grab a shovel and bash its head in. The statement is about the struggle that will exist between humanity and sin or humanity and Satan. The offspring of that little phrase is it's a collective phrase. So it doesn't just mean Eve's immediate children. Like the offspring of Eve is easy for us to get in mind. That's going to be the rest of humanity. But what's going on with the offspring of the serpent or the offspring of Satan? Is he having kids? Like who are the offspring that God is talking about here? I think the clearest answer actually comes from a couple places in the New Testament. In John 8, 44, we're told that Jesus calls the Pharisees children of the devil. That's very strong language. In 1 John 3, 7 through 10, John contrasts those who have been born of God with those who are of the devil. In both places, Jesus and John are referring to those who have willingly and intentionally set themselves against God, like the serpent, Satan, Satan isn't having children like Eve, but he does reproduce his rebellion against God in those who choose to live according to his lies rather than according to God's truth. There will be hostility, God says, between those two parties. Those who choose to live as children of God according to his truth and those who choose to live in rebellion to that, children of the serpent. But the headline here in verse 15 is that God tells Satan where that is moving. He will strike or crush your head, depending on your translation, and you will strike or bruise his heel. God looks at Satan and says, you will lose that struggle. You'll win at times. You'll do damage, but you will not win ultimately. In fact, you will end up being defeated by the seed of the woman. More on that later. But here it's as though God is saying, look, you've wanted to dethrone me since before creation, but I will have the last word and I'll do it through a human, the seed of the woman. Verse 16, God then speaks to Eve. And from this point forward, Eve looks forward at a future of painful childbearing and relational strife. Now the biological component in this has to do with that which makes Eve distinct from Adam. She can bear children. That's the fundamental difference between the sexes. At this point of fundamental difference, God announces consequence. Childbirth is going to be painful. He's going to intensify her pains in that. 
a couple of quick notes. This is not me or the text saying that uh, all women are meant to do is bear children. It's not me or the text saying that this, the, the bearing of children is like the fundamental identity point of women. We talked about identity as it relates to men and women back when we talked about Genesis 1 and 2. This is simply an acknowledgement that at the point of difference between Adam and Eve, God announces biological consequence. Also, another quick note here, we're seeing that God is just and there are consequences for sin. But even tucked into these, two, these first two pronouncements, there's wild grapes. If you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. That's what God said. And now twice in the middle of these judgment oracles, Adam and Eve have heard they're gonna live. She's gonna have kids. There will be offspring that Eve will have. And so she probably thought, interesting. I thought we might die right here and right now. And twice, offspring of the woman and the serpent and then intensify your labor pains. There's a little grace tucked in there. You, you will live. The relational component here is that the beauty of the partnership that should have existed between Adam and Eve is now gone. We talked about the beauty of that partnership back in Genesis chapter two. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. The picture is that rather than working together, ruling and reigning alongside one another for the glory of God and the world that God created, there will now be a desire, a desire by both male and female rather than ruling and reigning God's creation to rule one another, to dominate one another. The Hebrew word there for rule and like the whole phrase between desire and rule has this connotation of like physical struggle. In fact, if you jump forward into Genesis chapter four, God makes a statement to Cain in the midst of the Cain and Abel story that Cain, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Exact same construction, exact same verbiage. Cain, you, you've got to wrestle or struggle against sin that wants to dominate you so that you might rule over it. And the picture here in Genesis chapter three is that male and female, you are going to struggle against one another for dominance. We don't have time to unpack all of that with Cain and Abel. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But that's the reality now between Adam and Eve. The man and the woman who were to rule and reign in partnership with one another are now going to fight to rule and reign over one another. Fast forward into the New Testament when Paul talks about marriage and his command to husbands and wives is one of service and submission. Marriage in a Christian context is to be like a laying down of your arms. I'm going to relinquish my desire to rule and dominate this other person and instead enter into a relationship where I'm committed to serving and submitting. Like that's the beauty of Christian marriage, that when two people come together, they would willingly look another person in the eye and say, I'm going to fight against everything within me that wants to dominate or rule you and instead, in the image of Christ, I'm going to serve. 
that ought to be the image between brothers and sisters within the church as well. Now, there's a specific intimacy of that within marriage, but life within the church in kingdom of God reality here ought to be that rather than fighting to dominate or rule one another, we're all committed to the flourishing of the other, to service to one another, partnership with one another for the glory of God in the world that God created. And one of the things that ought to be beautiful when the world outside the church looks into the church is that they see male and female, both in marriages, but also in brother-sister relationships, working in partnership for something larger than themselves rather than just seeking to dominate or to rule one another and fighting against each other. That should be like a beautiful reality that plays itself out within the church as God says, hey, this is the way it's gonna be between men and women and the church says, but it doesn't have to be. We can live a different way because we have a different king than Satan, than our flesh. Adam. Verses 17 through 19, God addresses Adam. And from this point forward, Adam looks forward at a future of tiresome work and inevitable death. Again, the biological component here is about what God made Adam to do. Rule, reign, subdue, serve, guard, work the garden. That was supposed to be a joy and a delight for Adam. That Adam would tend to all the bounty there in the garden that God had created and blessed Adam and Eve with, and it would just be a joy for him to get to do that. Now God says it will be painful tiring struggle. It's going to be hard. You will still have provision, but you will have it by the sweat of your brow rather than by just my uh, kind uh, provision for you. And even in that, the very earth is not going to cooperate. You're going to get thorns and thistles, and that will be the case all the days of your life. Work, which was supposed to be this beautiful way that Adam and Eve imaged God in the world, partnering with him and creating and cultivating this place. Now it's going to be difficult drudgery. As just a quick side note, back when we talked about work and this like creation mandate that we have, we talked about the fact that culture making It's supposed to be this joyful partnership that humanity has with God. But notice what happened after Adam and Eve sinned. They take the fruit, they eat it, they realize they're naked, they grab some fig leaves, and what do they do? They sew them together. When did they learn how to sew? Like, when did they figure that? They've been doing the culture-making thing, taking what God has given them and figuring out how to use it there in their context. And now, as soon as they sin, what do they do with their culture making? They use it to hide from God in the place that God created. So even their like work there becomes stained by the sin that has entered into the picture. The same is true today. We can still have joy in the work that we do, but sin also stains the work that we do in the culture making that humanity does here in this place. By the sweat of our brow, we work to carve out a living. And sometimes even the things we do in making that living are stained by sin. It's broken everything in this world. The relational component here for Adam and Eve, or for Adam, you will die. You won't live forever. I told you that eating from the tree would lead to death, and so it will, God says. And he puts it incredibly poignantly You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. 
for since, or since you were taken from it, for you are dust. That's where I brought you to life and to dust you will return. I formed you out of the dust and breathed life into your nostrils and when the life runs out of your lungs, you will return to that dust. That's a chiastic thing that happens right there. Everybody paying attention? For from the dust you were taken and to the dust you will return. So if we take all of that and we sort of start building kind of like a, what are we seeing here in Genesis 3, 14 through 19? The first thing that we would note is that life in a sin-stained world is marked by struggle. They have known no struggle at all up until this point. And God says, a different reality is coming. And I have to imagine, they can't even conceive what that would be like. I don't even understand, what is pain? I don't get what you're talking about. What is tiresome labor? I've never experienced that before. They're staring down the barrel of something wildly different than they've ever experienced. As one other note before we go forward, the consequences that come into play here, um, they're humanity-wide. So the relational struggle that God pronounces to Eve, both men and women feel that struggle. The tiresome labor that God pronounces to Adam, both men and women feel that. It's not like men go to work and come home and wives are like, how was your day? And men are like, I'm exhausted. How was your day? My spreadsheet was great. I love work. Work is the most fun thing I do every single day. That's not how it works. Both, Both sexes feel the strain of that. Death is something both sexes are going to feel. All of the emotional, spiritual, physical, relational struggle in a sin-stained world, all of humanity is going to feel that from this point forward. Now let's take a step back. Sin has come into the picture. God is wildly gracious. He's perfectly just. And it's worth kind of like stepping back to make sure that our understanding of sin is as broad as the Bible's. The Bible has a lot to say about sin. The Old Testament is going to have a lot of pictures of what sin does in the life of God's people in in the world. When we think of sin, we typically think of sin as action. But the Bible has much more to say than that. The Bible pictures sin as action, as nature, The Bible pictures sin as rejection of God. It pictures sin as rivalry with God. It pictures sin as disobedience to God. It pictures sin as death. It pictures sin as separation from God. All of that is uh, there in Genesis chapter three. Sin as action. She took, or she saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. It's an action. Sin is something that you do. But sin is also something in your nature. The the Bible pictures sin as something you do, but also as something that you have. Something happens here in Genesis chapter three after they eat the fruit, right? They realize they're naked. Something has changed fundamentally in their nature and they say, we gotta hide. We need to hide from each other. We need to hide from God. Sin is something you do. It's also something you have. When we think of sin as something that we do, we think of disobedience. God says, do this, but I do this. 
When the Bible pictures sin as both action and nature, disobedience is absolutely a component, but the Bible also talks about sin as a rejection. It's a rejection of God's rightful place as Lord. He's king. He rules this place. We talked about that last week. Sin enters into the picture, but God does not cede over his ruling and reigning of the world that he created. He's still king. In our sin, we reject that. Did God really say? Can he actually do that? The Bible also pictures sin as rivalry. That's part of the serpent's temptation, right? You could be like him. You could not only reject his position as king, you could rise up and sit there next to him. And you could be just like him. The Bible pictures sin as death. You are from the dust and you will return to the dust. New Testament, the wages of sin, death. You were dead in your trespasses. The Bible pictures sin as separation. At the end of Genesis chapter three, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. The Old Testament is very clear about separation when it comes to humanity and sin. At our, the Israelites there, when Genesis is delivered, they're gathered around Mount Sinai and they get the law and God says, hey, Moses, you need to tell the Israelite people they cannot even touch this mountain because when I descend on it in my holiness, if anybody touches it, they will die. You are separate from me. You need to put a curtain between you and the Holy of Holies because when I dwell there, you cannot be there. Sin is separation. We need broad understandings of sin. We jump to sin as action. The Bible has much more to say about the reality of sin in the world. In a similar way, our understanding of humanity needs to be broad. Last week, I mentioned that a uniquely Christian worldview entails a three-act understanding of history. Creation, imperfection, fall, where everything is marred by sin, and then restoration. We see history in three acts. A uniquely Christian worldview also holds out a beautiful picture of humanity. Often the Christian idea of sin is sort of held out over the head of Christians as like, you've got this bleak idea of who humanity is. Those outside the church like, would maybe say like, we think humans are intrinsically good, but you inside the church, you think we're sinful and bad and broken, and you've got this bleak understanding of human nature. The doctrine at play there is total depravity. We're marked by sin. But there are two important truths to that. First, we do a disservice to our understanding of human nature if we start in Genesis 3. The doctrine of humanity starts in Genesis 1 and 2, not in Genesis chapter 3. That's part of the reason why we've been going so slow through this series. I had a, a meeting and a conversation uh, with a guy new to the church uh, earlier this week, and we're sitting in my office, and, and we talked on all sorts of topics. It was a wonderful conversation. In the middle of it, he says, uh, yeah, my wife and I, we've been enjoying Genesis. It's one of the slowest things I've ever seen. Uh, but it's been really good. And, uh, and I thought to myself, it has been slow, but it's been slow on purpose. By the time we get to Genesis chapter three, we have to have an understanding of Genesis one and two because the doctrine of humanity is that you are made in the image of God. 
out of nothing more than his love and his grace, he creates humanity. You bear the image of God. You have worth. You have dignity. You've been raised up to rule and to reign and to create in partnership with him in this world that he has created for his good and for his glory. Look, if the human nature of humanity from a Christian perspective starts in Genesis chapter three, then yes, by all means, it is bleak and broken and ugly and dark. But we actually hold out something better than that. The rest of the world may say, I think humanity is intrinsically good. The Christian ought to look back and say, I can do you one better because if you think this is good, let me tell you about something greater. Is it actually good if this little skin sack that we all inhabit is as good as it gets? I mean, this thing doesn't run as fast as I want it to. It craves things I don't want it to. It gets sick and it gets injured and it's gonna die one day. And like, you're telling me this is the good thing? I'm telling you there's something wildly better. That God created things in Genesis chapter one, chapter two, and he set his image upon us because he loves us uniquely as it relates to the rest of his creation. And it was perfect and it was good and sin entered into the world and it's this temporary distortion of that really beautiful thing. But good news, that is coming back. This is not it. This is a temporary state. And we get into these sorts of like conversations on human nature and it's like we just surrender ground when the reality is we have the better starting point, the better ending point, which means we've got a better middle point for right now. That yeah, you're subject to all the limitations of this thing and it stinks and it's broken and yes, it is marred by sin. But that does not have to be ultimate reality. We started in a better place and we are gonna end in a better place. And you can live right now in light of where we will end. You don't have to live right now as if right now is the only thing that will ever exist. Totally depraved because of sin, absolutely, but totally loved as evidenced in Christ. will be totally restored thanks to the work of Christ. And subject to the confines of this, heavens no. If this is all we've got, that's bleak and depressing. But this is not all we've got. It's not what we started with. It's not what God holds out for us. And so with that in mind, it's important that our understanding of the gospel be very broad. God is going to make right every single thing that sin has made wrong. Every aspect of life and this place that sin has broken, God is going to restore. The gospel is not just that sinners can be saved, though it's certainly that, and that is good news. It's bigger than that. God is going to restore everything that sin has broken. So this statement that we're working on building this morning, life in a sin-stained world is marked by struggle, but that doesn't get a period, it gets a comma because God has guaranteed his victory. Tucked into this passage is what scholars have traditionally called the first gospel. The Latin phrase there is the proto-euangelion. It's in verse 15. The head of the serpent will be struck or crushed. In one of the darkest passages in all of the Bible, Adam and Eve 
looking forward at a life marked by brokenness and sin that's unthinkably different from what they've experienced up to that point, this great hope comes bursting through. And then that hope hangs over the entirety of the Old Testament. As the Old Testament gives us a picture of all of the ways that brokenness seeps into and infects the world that God has created and the people that God has called to be his own, you get this picture that sin is bad and it's dark and it's broken and we're struck down and injured in innumerable ways by the reality of sin. But God promised that one would come who would put an end to it by cutting off sin right at its source, the serpent. There is one coming who will strike the head or crush the head of the serpent. That funnel that we've talked about Genesis using, it's like channeling your attention to look in a specific place. It's channeling your attention to one family and then one clan within that family and then one little group inside that clan. Why? Because here's where the serpent crusher is going to come from. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, Matthew hits you with the genealogy, first thing. Luke hits you with the genealogy. Why? Here he is. The one who is going to crush the head of the serpent has arrived. And notice here, Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel is not an announcement of personal salvation. It doesn't don't hear, I'm not canceling that out. But the first announcement is about the restoration of God's rule and reign. Satan, you thought you could come in here and take those people down. I will come back and take you down. That's the first announcement of the gospel. God's rule, God's reign, his dominion over his world. We think of the crushing of the serpent mostly in terms of personal salvation. But Genesis 3.15 does not say, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and I will come back and save you from that mean serpent. The first announcement of the gospel is there will be hostility between these two parties, but I will come back and crush one of them. I will rule. I reign. I've not ceded control of this place. Back during the Luke series, we talked about the kingdom of God as being a past, present, and future reality, that the kingdom of God has come, in Jesus when he came. It is coming as the church advances and it will come when Jesus returns one last time and puts a full and final end to sin. You can use the same language about this Genesis 3.15 process. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the serpent has been crushed. He is being crushed and he will be crushed. I get goosebumps talking about that. But Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, buried in a tomb, rising triumphantly, triumphantly, shaking off his grave clothes, and then he stomped on the head of that serpent on his way out of the grave. He has been crushed. Every single time the gospel comes into a person's life for the first time and God saves them by his grace, every single time you repent from your sin and humble yourself in submission to God as king, the serpent is crushed right there. Every single time the church gathers together and brings new kingdom realities into a broken world and says, look, there's something better. The serpent is being crushed. And then at the end, he's going to come back. And what is Jesus going to do? He's going to crush the serpent. There's Genesis 3.15. Has been crushed. 
is being crushed, will be crushed. And that's the great hope of the gospel. God has done all the work. He is doing all the work. And he will do all of the work. And you, follower of Jesus, are the lucky recipient of the fact that that includes your personal salvation. He will save you from the jaw of that serpent as he crushes the head of that serpent. Amen? Are you awake? Like, this is such good news. We talk about hope, and it's not, I watch the news, and I see the brokenness, and I think to myself, ah, maybe one day it'll be better. No, it can be better now. He's already crushed the head of the serpent. He is crushing the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent. And so that thing that we look forward to and we long for, and we think, oh, one day it'll be so much better, walk in that reality now. You do not have to be slave to the sin and the temptation that so ensnares you. Why? He's crushed the head of the serpent and he is crushing the head of the serpent. And even if you wrestle with that thing to the greatest ability of your faithfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit for the entirety of your life, one day God's coming back and he will crush it for good. That's good news now. That's good news later. Like you have hope in that. God says, look, this is the reality. You brought sin into the world, Adam and Eve. This is going to be the reality from here on out, but I will crush that thing. And he crushed it at Calvary, and he's crushing it now as the Holy Spirit works in and through his people, the church, and he will crush it when he returns on a white horse with a flaming sword and the armies of God arrayed around him, and he sends the devil, that ancient serpent, back into the pit. We sat around as a pastoral staff on Monday. We talked about this idea of hope and like how do we take hold of that and what does that mean? And so I'm gonna give you rapid fire the ways that our pastoral staff talked about this. If one of these grabs hold of your heart, praise the Lord. Those who were there on, were able to be there on Monday afternoon, Adam says, when I think about hope, I think about the reality is that what is won't always be. He came back about two minutes later and he said, that actually comes from Paul David Tripp. <laughs> it sounded great coming out of Adam's mouth though. <laughs> what is won't always be. Libby said, when I think about hope, I think about the fact that as a believer, you can be part of both experiencing and bringing redemption into the world. Erica and Isaiah s s sort of put their uh, back and forth verbiage together. And they said, hope is the reality that God's victory is also yours. Kurt said, hope is the reality that we walk in a victory that is secure. It's already been won, guaranteed, promised, given to you. Ben said, when I think about hope, I think about Romans chapter eight, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Life in a sin-stained world is marked by struggle, comma, not period, because God has guaranteed his victory. You've got living hope right now because the serpent crusher has crushed the head of the serpent, is crushing the head of the serpent, and will crush the head of the serpent. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.